bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Amy. And we are here for a bonus podcast. Um, we will be joined by two wonderful women uh, from Rewired.News to discuss uh, reproductive rights and justice in America. You guys uh, are so lucky. This is like a huge education. <laughs> um, when Amy found out who our guests were, she had a bit of a fangirl moment. She was like, oh my God, this is going to be so amazing. <laughs> And just my luck, the day we have the interview, I have to have like orthodontic work done. So I don't even sound like myself. And I'm having a, such a hard time speaking, but I was taking notes like this was wonderful. Um, so both of our guests are lawyers. And did you were you able to like get enough like legalese out of them to like warm your heart? Um. I mean, I think they do a great job of making that legally accessible for um, the layperson, but without like speaking down. And so I think it's going to be really great for our listeners. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's they've got they've got skills to impart and knowledge too. So yeah, it's great. Great. So uh, stay tuned after the break, and you can listen to our interview with Imani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo from Rewire.News. So we are joined this afternoon by two uh, guests from Rewire.News, which is the leading nonprofit devoted to reproductive health, rights, and justice. Uh, Jessica Mason-Piclo is the Vice President of Law and the Courts at Rewire.News, and Imani Gandhi is a Senior Legal Analyst at Rewire.News, where she runs the Angry Black Lady Chronicles. Together, they are the hosts of the popular Boom! Lawyered podcast, which provides legal analysis for the resistance. And next week... They will be doing daily episodes of their podcast to analyze the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. So we're here today to kind of get a sense of what is going on in America with regard to reproductive justice. Um, and so in Canada, reproductive rights are federally regulated, much like gay marriage, which isn't to say that provinces can't severely impact access to safe abortion but it's very different in the U.S. with regards to the federal government and the state governments legalizing different aspects of the law. Is that a correct characterization? Um, sure. I think, um, Amani, I'll, I'll start and then um, you fill in the stuff that I missed. So in the states, real broadly, um, how it works is we have the right to access an abortion um, and contraception, and what I would what I would just categorize broadly as reproductive autonomy. That's a right that is protected in our federal constitution, um, and um, through the Fourteenth Amendment and and all sorts of good things, and and as part of the right to privacy. Um, through that, though, the Supreme Court has said that while that right exists, states also have a corresponding right and what they categorize as an interest in uh, potential fetal life and in, in also regulating aspects of the medical profession uh, that would include abortion and abortion services and so forth. And so they have, over the course of time, created what is a balancing test of rights between the reproductive autonomy 
autonomy of an individual and their uh, rights and, and freedoms and the police power of the state to regulate that. And how that's played out in reality in the states is it's created what I would categorize as a patchwork of rights, meaning that depending on what state you live in, you have effectively more access to uh, realize your right to abortion, your right to contraception, your right to reproductive autonomy than in other states. And that has been the result of political victories by anti-abortion, anti-choice politicians in some states. And yeah, and I would add what all, it also matters sort of what income level you are. And because race tends to correlate with income level in this country, um, I would say that the system here sets up a sort of hierarchy of healthcare delivery services where certain people are able to access certain abortion rights, certain abortion care, and other people aren't because they may be on Medicaid or they may be Native American and therefore um, get their their health care through the uh, Indian Health Services. Or and and as you may not know, or you may know, um, the Hyde Amendment is a rider that's attached to appropriations bills every year that says that taxpayer funds can't go f- go to pay for abortion. So that covers anyone who's on Medicaid, who's who, who is low income. That covers people who are in the military. So women or pregnant people who are in the military can't access abortion. Um, and that also covers, as I said, Native American Indigenous people. So yeah, Jess is right. It's a patchwork of rights, even for the people who can afford it, you know, for people who are well off, for people who aren't, the right is almost non-existent due to um, government intervention and also due to lack of access and st- the way states have been regulating abortion to such an extent that, you know, you have to jump over a million hoops in order to get one, which basically means you can't get one at all. Mm-hmm. So we've noticed, and so- yeah, do I... <laughs> No, go ahead. So since uh, Donald Trump's inauguration, I, we, his administration has done uh, a fair bit to start chipping away at women's health care and reproductive rights, whether it's domestic or, in glo- or global. I wonder if you can maybe walk us through what some of the uh, highlights of these uh, different approaches have been. Sure. So if there's a silver lining to um, the Trump presidency, it's that through Congress, they haven't been able to get much accomplished yet. So, um, you know, you mentioned a couple different what I, what I would call lowlights of attacks um, that the administration, the conservatives that are in power um, have launched. And one of the ways that they've done that is through executive orders. And those are um, uh Orders that the president, that the executive branch in this in this country puts out that um, are intended to be like law, but they're not the same thing. They're not um, this as a statute that Congress would pass. So, for example, the Affordable Care Act, right? Obamacare. That's a that's a statute that that our Congress passed, and in it has a bunch of uh, health protections, in, including um, access to contraception and um, non discrimination care in the in section 1557. So those are key provisions. Um, Congress is the only one that can undo that, or it can be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And so so far, our Supreme Court has had several opportunities to declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional and has largely declined to do so. Um, And Congress tried to repeal it and failed. Um, And so 
uh, what Trump has done in response is to issue these executive orders that purport to take the effect of law. Um, for example, rolling back the birth control benefit in the Affordable Care Act. Um, he has tried to do that through executive order. Um, the federal courts have largely blocked those executive orders um, and, and those attempts to circumvent the regular law make, rulemaking process, um, but uh, you know it. it they haven't. Uh, it hasn't been for want of trying. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, global gag rule. Um, those, you know, that would prohibit any entity that offers um, any kind of health services from even referring or mentioning saying that dirty word Ooh. abortion <laughs> um, and risk funding. And so, you know, um, these are, well, I, I, I crack a little bit about it. It's, you know, obviously very serious because this is, you know, um, you can't have comprehensive uh, reproductive health care without the ability to terminate a pregnancy when it's Absolutely. warranted. And so when you talk about um, doctors not being able to tell patients that, you know, abortion is a an option for them um, when they discover they're pregnant, um, what, what's the sort of sex ed program look like in, in America? Or, I mean, I guess it's probably different state by state because, you know, we here in Ontario with um, Doug Ford, our new premier, he's rolled back our sex ed curriculum back to 1998 levels. Um, and it's, you know, we're not talking about consent. We're not talking about different genders or same sex relationships. And it's very regressive. Um, and there's been a big outcry it's about it. It's pretty regressive here as well. Um, it tends to get more regressive when there are Republicans in the White House. So you get stuff like um, refusing grant money to anyone that's not that's teaching anything but abstinence only, which is absurd because we know that people have sex. It's just what we do. And so trying to preach to a bunch of teenagers don't have sex is not it's proven not it's not, it's not only proven not to work. It's just asinine in general. Um, you have things like oh, states will pass laws that require specific subjects, require parental consent before teaching specific subjects, which can be problematic if you are not from a stable family home, if you're not from a home that um, is a loving and caring home, if you are a victim of abuse in the home, um, those, that, that, sort of, that sort of permission may not ever be forthcoming. So, um, and then certainly when it comes to same-sex sex or same-sex marriage. I mean, in a lot of states, like you, I don't even think they're even allowed to teach that in a lot of states, certainly in the more red states and the more regressive states. You know, here we're in, I'm in Colorado. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, we talk about abortion as patchwork, there's no sort of, there are no like baseline standards for uh, sex ed curricula across the country um, in the United States. It's largely sort of local jurisdiction. And you can, oftentimes families can opt, just opt out of it too. So as Imani said, you know, some of these um, uh, school districts will have requirements that you opt in and others will allow you to opt out. So at a basic level, you know, we're talking about, um, or some folks will, if they're in a private school, will have abstinence only as their only method, you know, uh, and it's, the repercussions are really shocking. You know, I went to, at one time at, I was giving a talk at the University of Arkansas and um, just by, to a bunch of undergraduates to, you know, college students. And I asked just a real quick show of hands what the sex ed level was. And this is a large public in university in the States um, that has a bunch of money from all over and, and teaches a bunch of students. And I would say out of the, you know, 100 or so students that were in the room, two thirds of them raised their hands and had only had abstinence only education prior to coming to college. And so, 
you know, that's that's how people they, there, there was a basic understanding of biology. And yet here we are, you know, and especially when it comes to this it. basic level of understanding of biology and science, I think it's important. Though, um, I just looked this up real quick that um, only 13 states require there are 22 states that mandate sex education. And of those 22, only 13 require the information to be medically accurate. So you have states where, yeah, you can have sex ed classes, but what they're teaching you may not have any basis whatsoever in science. Who stuff? Yeah, I mean it's absurd, right? I mean, just even saying that is absurd. Yeah, wow. you can share information; it just doesn't have to be true. Um, and then I think what's really important, especially in the age of of the Me Too movement, is that kids are not being taught about consent in school because, especially in states where mm-hmm. um, abstinence only is the only thing that they're being taught, they're not being taught what it means to have consensual sex, what consent looks like. They're being taught to be, you know, they're being shamed by their bodies. They're being taught that they're whatever sexual urge they may, may be having are unnatural and you really need to just push them down until marriage. And that's just, that's just not a healthy approach to sex education, certainly. Um, and it certainly leads to problems in college. I mean, we have a campus assault problem in this country and if you're you know graduating kids from high school who have no no sort of bearing when it comes to consent and what enthusiastic consent looks like then you're basically sending a bunch of potential date rapists to college and that is something that can and should be handled at much far before people start their first year in college absolutely so um you mentioned funding um and so this is title 10 funding correct yeah, Title X is the um, is the federal funding program for uh, family planning and related uh, health services that the um, that the federal government operates. And so it's a largely a grant program, um, and states opt into it. Um, and the federal government can put uh, various restrictions on the the recipient or on the recipients of those grants. Historically, the courts have said though that they that those um, restrictions can't be discriminatory, including on the basis of providers who offer comprehensive reproductive health care. And so that has historically um, protected folks like Planned Parenthood from being completely cut out of the conversation here in the United States. Um, But we're under the Trump administration seeing a resurgence in those efforts and uh, with a federal court that is extremely and increasingly so conservative, um, a willingness to uh, find new ways to make that possible. So the you know the sort of sex ed and the information fight uh, is going to be a really critical one in this country in the next you know six months to a year, especially. And so there was recent stories about how Planned Parenthood was blocked from Medicaid funding. I, mean, I think they've, they've been blocked by a lot of states, or, and a lot of the courts are turning that, that over. But with the courts <laughs> swinging rightward, that might not be the case anymore. So that's certainly a problem and a, a looming danger. Yeah, Congress recently, I mean, uh, recently tried to cut Planned Parenthood out of the funding um, loop again just a couple weeks ago. And then Imani's absolutely right. States have been mon- have been monkeying around with this for a while, and um, the federal courts have blocked those, although uh, there are some fights like Arkansas, for example, is a state that we can point to where there's a Medicaid fight that is very live, and the federal court there has said um, that the manner in which 
Arkansas is trying to oh. defund Planned Parenthood is just fine. Sorry, I think um, you lost and, there for a uh, Can we so, get back uh, to Arkansas? That has been allowed to happen. Um, it's still, that court fight is still going on, so it's not ultimately resolved, but um, it is it is happening. And other states have tried. South Carolina is another one that has tried, although a federal court just recently said, no, you can't. So um, again, going back to this patchwork idea, we're seeing you know folks if and also having a different outcome back in South in Carolina than in Arkansas. The Kavanaugh nomination. So for example, if that. we've got in certain states, certain circuits, you know, the, the American courts, federal courts are are divided into circuits. So that in circuits cover a couple of few states um, each. And so for example, if in Arkansas, which is what the eighth or the tenth, it's the eighth. So. Arkansas is the eighth. So, for example, if the if the Arkansas battle turns out badly for reproductive rights advocates, yes, the and the court says, no, "Oh, it's Arkansas just fine eight. to um, defund Medicaid," and then you've got other circuit courts that have said, "No, you can't defund Medicaid." That that brings up or that um, arises from that is what's called a circuit split, and that means when different circuit courts of appeal come out different ways on one issue, and because the Supreme Court needs. Um, uniformity in laws and federal laws as they apply to the, to the states, what they'll do is they will, you know, they will take a petition for, uh, for writ of certiorari and they will analyze that and they will decide whether or not it is constitutional to defund Medicaid, uh, Planned Parenthood or not. And with Kavanaugh looming and probably going to probably going to be confirmed, then we have a strongly conservative court, which means we're more likely to see the court say it's absolutely fine to defund Planned Parenthood. And then that is going to have, terrible repercussions for the people who rely on Planned Parenthood and on Medicaid to get their healthcare services. So, I mean, this Kavanaugh nomination is really sort of the touchstone for a lot of horrible shit. Can I say shit on this podcast? <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like that it's, rating going. So. There's just a lot of, uh, it's going to be really totally shitty for it. a lot of people. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why I'm so nervous about a Kavanaugh nomination, um, even though I think no, whether it's Kavanaugh or somebody else, I don't. I don't think Republicans in this country care enough about bipartisanship to try and replace Kennedy with someone who's like Kennedy. You know, they're mm -hmm. just going to try and swing the courts all the way to the right, um, which means everyone who cares about civil rights or anything related to civil rights or reproductive justice or social justice is basically fucked. And I mean, I, yeah, I'm not one to like jump in and and uh, <laughs> in terms of like patting Republicans on the back like ever. Um, and especially the Bush family. But I mean, man, you know, the first Bush administration in this country actually did a lot to advance family planning and contraception and sort of comprehensive um, care. They were anti-abortion, but they were pro-contraception and pro-family planning and pro-sex ed because they saw it as a conservative mission that would reduce the ultimate number of abortions. And that has gone completely sideways. And now we have conservatives yeah. in this country who aren't yeah. just anti-abortion, yeah. they're anti-contraception. Yeah, I mean, Title VII, which protects employees from discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin, religion. Um, and, and one of these briefs, one of these evangelical organizations actually made the argument that using this woman, Amy, who's a transgender woman, using her preferred pronouns was prejudicial error. So those are the sorts of people that were dealing. I mean, they, they literally, they, they literally mocked the sixth circuit, which is the court that ruled, no, you can't fire transgender people for being transgender, basically mocked the court because the court dropped a footnote at the beginning of the opinion saying, we're going to use she, her pronouns, because those are Amy Stevens's 
uh, preferred pronouns and Mesa and this, this, this evangelical group who filed this brief basically mocked the idea that the court would, would approach Amy Stevens with tolerance and understanding, literally mock that idea saying that judges are not supposed to up to approach parties to litigation with tolerance and understanding saying that when the issue of the litigation is whether or not this person is male or female, wow. when that's not the, the issue at all, the issue is whether or not male or female, they can be discriminated against. Wow. And so a lot of these evangelicals and conservatives in this country really do th- think that um, like the quote unquote homosexual and transgender agenda is really about g- granting special rights to LGBTQ people, but it's really about just granting the right to not be discriminated against. And we're here at a situation in this country where I think there will be sanctioned, legally sanctioned discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, which, you know, two or three years ago, I would have thought, well, that's never going to happen because the Obama administration advanced transgender rights so much um, in a way that was really, I think, po- positive and forward thinking. And now we've got this jackass in the White House who is in- is hell bent on basically undoing anything Obama does, whether it's hunting in the Yellowstone or reproductive rights. I mean, anything Obama's for, he's automatically against. Um, my view is I think Obama should come out against breathing and then just see what Trump does. <laughs> Because he might just say, well, I'm going to hold my breath forever. And then we could be rid of this nasty mess. Um, so, but yeah, we are dealing with with people in this country who fundamentally <laughs> use religion as a sword. And they are slicing through marginalized <laughs> communities and people who need the most help right. and the most protection from the courts. And I think the courts now with the, with the stacking of the courts with right-wing conservatives, courts are going to oblige them. Oh, <laughs> is he Canadian? Oh dear! Mm-hmm. And I thought y'all were so nice. <laughs> I thought that was supposed to be the thing. Yeah, I just want to take a moment to uh, apologize for introducing oh, yeah. to Jordan Peterson. You can have him though if you want. Oh gosh, hard! Like yeah. it's, it's taken all my energy through this discussion not to talk about like all the flawed things that we have here around I mean the sex ed curriculum is one example but you know we have for example like public catholic schools in Ontario that also teach abstinence only um our balancing tests you know between rights don't always shake out the way they should and and do leave some room for interpretation although we uh, at least our, our conception of at least a living so I wanted to switch gears uh, more more concretely into the discussion around Roe v. Wade, a little bit about Kavanaugh. But first asking, you know, we've, I've been reading a little bit about trigger laws or trigger bans, which could go into yeah, effect there are in states the situation that have Roe and Wade. Laws, essentially that say, we know Roe v. Wade is the land of the law and that really stinks, but someday it's not going to be. And as soon as it's not, then then abortion is illegal in this state. I mean, essentially, it's a law that is triggered by a reversal of Roe versus Wade. Um, and I'm not sure, maybe Jessica, you know how many states have those trigger laws? I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. That's unreal. I think there are five. I think there are five, although I would want I would want a fact check on me on that. But five is the number that immediately comes to mind. And um, in addition to that, there are what I call sort of zombie statutes that will be that could be reanimated. And these exist in places like uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, for example, where they have um, unlawful criminal abortion bans on the books. So laws on the books that ban abortion, make it a crime to perform them that 
And those those laws were never repealed after Roe v. Wade. They just were not enforced. And so should Roe v. Wade be directly overturned, um, there is the possibility that an attorney general in either in states that have those mm-hmm. could then start prosecuting people under those abortion bans. And many states have those. Um, again, the exact number off the top of my head is is escaping me, but more than right. I believe there are more than 10. <laughs> So the ones there are four that would go into immediate effect. Um, Oh, I was close. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mississippi, Louisiana, North Dakota, and South Dakota. They're dead. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) Yep. Louisiana's law would punish anyone who performs or aids in an abortion with up to 10 years in prison and a maximum fine of $100,000. Yeah. And, you know, not to, oh, I was just gonna say not to get too much into the legal weeds on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to get a little bit into the legal weeds too. And I mean, there are layers upon layers on this. So those are states that have these bans that go into effect. There are, um, there are the possibility through other criminal statutes that they can, um, potentially prosecute people who leave the state and have an abortion elsewhere. Um, so that is that sort of ex, we call that extra uh, jurisdictional powers. And so there are some states with, with uh, uh, those laws on the books. I think Utah is, is for having Auntie choicers sort of took a feminist tact to it, which was kind of very irritating to me um, using sort of feminist language to make it seem as if abortion was something that was being done to poor hapless women. And it's anti-feminist to force women to deny their maternal instincts mm-hmm. by having abortions. And so it became about these made up post-traumatic abortion syndrome uh, uh, traumas. Right. And so, um, and so that, you know, they were parading these women around these women who'd had abortions and then regret and grew right. to regret and it. And, you know, they were ta- talking about, you know, being themselves. frightened at the sound of vacuum cleaners, which is just absurd anyway, but you know, they are preying upon, and that is, I mean, there are women who get abortions and who regret it. There are women who are mm-hmm. people who are st- into abortions. And that is something certainly that no reproductive j- justice advocate, justice advocate advocates for, but there's something really sort of macabre about about you sort of dragging around these women who are traumatized by something that happened to them and then making the case that their trauma should be applicable to all pregnant people. I mean, it's like there are studies that show that most people who get abortions are perfectly happy with it. I mean, I mean, happy with the result, happy that they are not being forced to become a parent. So there, um, and and now it seems like we're moving back away from oh these poor women back to oh these women are killing babies and so that's how you get situations like Pervy Patel who was a woman in Indiana who was prosecuted for an abortion um uh, I guess I was going to say abortion gone wrong but that sounds like a reality show like World's Deadliest Catch or something. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, there are prosecuting women who buy abortion pills on the Internet. They are prosecuting, I mean, you know, anything they can do to control women and women's sexuality is is that is all on the table right now. And it really wasn't like a decade ago, I would say a decade ago. It was more about we have to protect these women from these horrible doctors who are doing these horrible things and telling them lies to to get them to Mm -hmm. to get these procedures. And now we're back to. Right, right. And now we're just back to it's murder. And we just got to we just got to throw we gonna throw women in jail who have abortions. Right. And focus on counseling them out of it. And Hmm. 
So uh, given the makeup of the U.S. Senate right now, um, with the Republicans holding the balance of power at 51 to 49, so it seems very likely that Brett Kavanaugh is going to get confirmed, um, especially since there are some Democrats um, and pro-choice Republicans who are up for re-election in November. Right. And like Susan Collins, for God's sakes, like how many times are you going to be Charlie? Are you going to be Charlie Brown with the goddamn football? You know, it's like, oh, sure. He will. Brett Kavanaugh told me that he wasn't going to, you know, stop it. It's just, it's nonsense. And all you have to do is read what he thinks, read his positions on things to know that it's fucking nonsense, (laughs) you know? And yeah, you know, I mean, it doesn't even really matter whether or not he would vote to reverse row. What's really, I think, in my opinion, more important is how he's going to vote when it comes to deciding whether state regulations are an undue burden under Planned Parenthood versus versus Casey. You know, that's the sort of, that's the real crux of the issue is whether or not these quote unquote informed consent laws, these trap laws, um, these laws that require, you know, to, to get forced ultrasounds, whether or not those will be deemed to be a substantial obstacle in front of a person seeking abortion. And my, my view is there's, and if I were to make a guess, if I were to hazard a guess, I would say that Kavanaugh is going to rubber stamp every state regulation that comes through and say, well, yeah, it's really all about women's health and safety. Um, And if you can couch something as, you know, helpful to women and helpful to their safety, then it's not so bad, even when really ultimately you're controlling their sexuality and their reproductive autonomy. Um, so what, like this is obviously a very political situation, you know, because you've got, you know, Joe Manchin, who's like, oh, like, I don't see anything wrong with this. And it becomes very political just because an election is what, 60 some days away. Um, and so why do you think this is going to continue to be an issue going into 2020 for the Democrats more specifically? Yeah, because like, you know, the base of the party would like the whole party to just be, you know, pro-choice. And Justin Trudeau's liberal party is very publicly pro-choice. And um, he said there's no, basically no space in the party for an anti-choice sentiment. And so is that something that the Democrats should consider or are they fine with the Joe Manchins of the world? Yes, they absolutely should consider this because I, you know, another way to say this is that there's no room in the party for those who don't believe in fundamental human rights. Because what we're talking about here is the, you know, the right to be free from the government dictating exactly the terms of when you have a child, how you have a child, when you have, you like where you have a child. These are actual, and how you have it, you know, these are fundamentally conservative positions, which right, and it's also something that we're fighting with people who are pro choice. Democrats, but who would rather not yeah, talk you know, about it, right? Like, so you get and, these people so who are like, yeah, I'm pro-choice, no but they don't and want so to Democrats say the dirty should, word, you know, because the dirty word is going to scare that, off some potential voters. Um, you know, you so know, you get people uh, like Nancy you know, Pelosi uh, saying, yeah, no, we could I mean, probably make room Manchin in the Democratic Party for anti-choice people. And I'm like, the fuck we can? No, we really can't. Abortion restrictions, For me, that's just a deal breaker. You can be anti-abortion. You can be you know, I'm not a person that would want to get an abortion, but what you cannot do is tell someone else what they can or cannot yeah. do. And that's really, I think, where, as Jessica said, that the line should be drawn at human rights and the right to control when, whether, and how you have a child or if you have a child is a human right. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about organization like 
Democrats for Life of America, the anti-choice lobbying group. I, I know you guys have been doing some coverage on that, and I think it's it's probably baffling <laughs> to a lot of people that such a group exists and, and seems to say that they're distinct somehow from anti-choice Republicans. <laughs> Who are concerned for America. <laughs> I think it's a lot of marketing. It's like the organization concerned women for America and they're, <laughs> it, they are legit, legit exist and, and um, they yeah, I mean, are usually not made of women. Over the really last like, 40 years when it comes to fighting Roe. And I think that's placed people um, who are pro, it I, I think it's placed great, the pro-choice and you know, concerned right women slash for justice America out there movement at a disadvantage because we find ourselves so, constantly um, reacting you know, I, to the stuff uh, that anti-choices do as I opposed to I being could, proactive. Now, in the last couple of years, there have been more organizations dedicated to writing model (laughs) legislation that promotes reproductive equality and reproductive rights. Um, But literally for 10 to 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years, 30, 40 years, all we've been doing is trying to like, you know, plug holes in the SS abortion, you know, as like it's sinking like the Titanic and it's like. Well, what what strikes yeah what what strikes me like Jess, you're talking about like the way you described it. You know, it's just like this like we're talking about basic human rights here. We don't even get to have the opportunity to talk yeah. about access, like meaningful access, which Imani you, you laid out very well at the beginning. Like there is this huge discrepancy in who actually gets to meaningfully appreciate the right to have an abortion and and fundamentally this right to privacy around healthcare. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate that it's so reactive. What I want to know is like, what are the actual impacts for the midterms or for Democrats in terms of electoral outcomes that this sort of messaging has? Like, is this going to stifle their chances or how does how does this work out in terms of the electorate? I'll just say briefly, like in Canada, the last measure shows that 75% of Canadians actually do well, believe I know that anti-choicers that, uh, are very, I mean, they are very involved in on the ground organizing. Although a lot of air does seem to be taken up by anti-choicers. Um, so I wonder, uh, you know, we have a friend who had... Who sort of had drinks with an anti-choicer, like a very prominent anti-choicer. I'm not going to out either of the people because I don't know if they would want me to, but Jessica knows who I'm talking about. But essentially this person, Mm -hmm. this anti-choicer laid out their entire plan for the election. And what they are doing is they are going after basically Catholic Latinos, right? Because the Latinx population is exploding in this country and a lot of folks just automatically assume that they're going to vote for Democrats because they're brown people and Republicans don't like brown people. So it makes sense that the brown people would vote for the people who dislike them a little bit less, which is Democrats. Um, And so, but that's not necessarily the case because a lot of times um, these folks are deeply religious. And so anti-choicers are sort of honing in on that. They're trying to hone in on religion and abortion and quote unquote family values and to try and sort of, I guess, deflect, deflect attention from the horrible immigration policies that are going on and sort of putting it to like, well, what do you care about more? Do you care about immigration or do you care about family values and abortion and all of that, you know, the law and God and Jesus? And it's kind of like, if you're, if that's the way you're approaching voters, and if you're the only side that's approaching voters in that way, then that's going to stick. So I'm not sure how much of an effect it's going to have, but it certainly concerns me that... Um, these anti-choice organizations are actually on the ground in neighborhoods talking to people. And it seems like a lot of the pro-choice, like the big name pro-choice organizations in this country are just sending emails asking for more money. (laughs) It's kind of like, 
kind of like how folks will scratch their head and and look at President Trump and say, I don't understand how evangelicals can support this man who's so clearly terrible and contrary to what they say their their values are. But the reality is, is they will support him and they are his biggest, strongest, most ardent supporters because he's delivering to them on this promise to attack abortion rights, to deliver a Supreme Court that will overturn Roe v. Wade. And conservatives in this country are largely single issue voters when it comes to this. And Democrats and, and liberals have not. I mean, and meanwhile, on the left, we're fighting about, you know, whether or not what what, what form um, our universal health care plan should take. Or is it this thing or that thing? It's like even a, the one thing we all agree on, That's which brilliant. is that we should have universal health care. But yeah. now we're fighting about what to call it. Um, and it's just it's it's very frustrating. And I mean, on the one hand, I you know, people on the left, Democrats are more broad. They think about more issues. Right. They're not one issue voters. We're not off. We don't, we're not authoritarian. You know, if you present a Democrat or a liberal with facts that right. counter what they already believe, that Democrat or liberal is usually going to change what they believe to comport with the facts. That's not what Republicans do. Republicans will they will just basically eschew anything that already doesn't fit into their worldview. So when it comes to voting, you can tell a group of Republicans, you need to go vote against this person because that person's going to overturn Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade, or that person is going to help undo all the same sex marriage nonsense that the gay agenda has pushed on us. I mean, those are the things that they care about to the exclusion of anything that actually matters to their life. Cause I'm, I'm, I assure you that if John and Sam are getting married down the street, that has nothing to do with you, but somehow they've been convinced and brainwashed into believing that that is all that matters. And so stuff like, you know, a living wage, healthcare, all of those things seem like just socialist madness to them. Jess? <laughs> I was like, I was going to say a clusterfuck, but I don't think that's the answer you're looking for. Um, so one last question. Um, what should we be on the lookout for heading into the midterms and looking to 2020 with regards to reproductive justice? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Barring the yeah, well, I mean, personhood. So I, I mean, a lot. Uh, if um, Republicans are successful in holding on to both the House yeah. and the Senate, and they get Kavanaugh anointed as a justice, then um, we've already they've already got federal legislation that is cooking um, everything from a twenty-week abortion ban to a six-week abortion ban to, um, oh gosh, I mean, they've got a personhood. Yeah. Life beginning at conception act. So no, I think you nailed it. Uh, it really yeah, would they're depend. Gonna, <laughs> that, the script is gone. Exactly. The script is dead and we're just sort of playing it by ear and trying to counter arguments as they come up. Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, Mississippi right now is trying a 15 week ban. What the hell for? I don't know, but like, it's just like they're picking numbers <laughs> out of a hat and trying to see, well, can we ban abortion at this, at this date? What about this time? What about this time? And it's at a certain point, it's just, you know, we really, I think that, I don't know if you guys have watched the handmaid's tale. I've only watched the first season. I haven't watched the second season yet. Um, yeah. Holy shit. But I've heard it's more traumatic, which is why I've been trying to watch happy shows. Um, but, you know, I think we are actually, we're really closer to that sort of dystopian um, future than people would like to admit. And I'm oh, yeah. not saying that, you know, p women are going to be raped on the daily uh, to provide children traumatic. for rich people. But we are certainly heading into a point where <laughs> pregnant people will just have no say about what happens to their body. 
You know, we're going to be at a point where you can't get contraception. We may mm-hmm. be, at, be at a point going back to pre-1965 yeah. where you can get, you can be um, charged with a crime for having contraception. <laughs> so, you know, I think a lot, of, I think because of the, the history of this country is so short that really nothing is off the table. You know, Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the, the, the case where that said that, you know, people have the right to use contraception was only, it was 1965. That's not that long ago. I mean, when you talk about countries that have been around for thousands of years, that's a drop in the bucket. So when people say, oh, it's settled law, nothing is settled law. If they, if they went back to like undo Marbury versus Madison, like that would be a little bit weird because <laughs> that case is from like 18, whatever. But when we're talking about rules regarding um, right. privacy rights and any, any of the, any of the, the, the jurisprudence that stemmed from privacy rights, we're talking contraception, abortion, so, you know, sodomy in your own home, same sex, sex in your own home, all of that stuff is up for grabs. Um, and I think that, I feel like I, I'm really alarmist and sometimes people think I'm being super alarmist when I say that, but it, I'm really not. People, abortion rights are not safe. Contraception rights are not safe. Certainly LGBT rights are no longer safe. Um, they weren't, I mean, they were only slightly safe to the extent that you could get married, but they still weren't safe when it comes to adoption, fostering and that sort of thing, even including whether or not you can be fired. So it's a mess and it's going to be a really big seismic shift. And I just, I, I, I'm not sure it's going to change in our lifetime, but I certainly am going to keep fighting until I can't fight anymore. So. And just to underscore Amani's point about how unsettled and uncertain and young all of this is, you know, um, Brett Kavanaugh was working in the Bush White House at the time the Supreme Court was hearing uh, Lawrence v. Texas, which is the case that struck as unconstitutional Texas's criminal sodomy law. Um, And at the time, the Bush administration wasn't taking a position on it. In other words, it wasn't saying that it thought Texas's law was unconstitutional. And that's in part because before he was president, uh, George Bush was governor of Texas and had defended the sodomy, the sodomy ban as uh, Um, being a nod to traditional values. And so Kavanaugh was involved in all of this. So, you know, um, it's Amani's um, not being alarmist at all. He was ha- he was in the room in some capacity when these kinds of conversations were happening at the federal level. And those same forces want him for a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. And that should give everyone great pause. Um, so it sounds like uh, there's about a, a week or so. Is that how long the hearings should take? A little bit longer, a couple weeks? Yeah, right now they've got him scheduled for Tuesday through Friday after Labor Day. And those documents so have a lot to do with to his policies um, in the Bush I mean, White the world House. Is said, some of his involvement like in torture policy and warrantless wiretapping. Um, and these are documents that Republicans have decided, well, we don't need to turn them over. We're just going to go ahead and, and start the process anyway. So I'm hoping that people will find that sort of dishonesty and that um, bucking of institutional norms to be bad enough that they say, hey, we need to put a pause on this nomination process until we get all the documents and we know what we're looking at. Um, I think that's a stronger argument, but I obviously understand why it is that people in the pro-choice community are are rabble-rousing for Roe, because I think that's important, but I don't think that that's going to make or break this thing. I think it's going to be A, the document disclosures, or B, maybe an unindicted co-conspirator shouldn't be appointing anyone to the Supreme Court at all. That's just my view. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, if you may, if you maybe had help from a foreign government to become president, maybe you want to not be po- appointing lifetime appointments. That's just, but you know, what are you going to do? Oh, good. I, it was enjoyable. 
we don't often get to talk to people from other countries. So <laughs> even though you're just a little bit to the north. <clears throat> yeah, so that's always fun. <laughs> you know what? It's a, it's, it's a good argument. It's like, and another thing. And an, oh, yeah, and this other thing too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that wraps it up for our questions. Um, this has been so great. <laughs> yeah, this has been so fun. Thanks. Yeah, it really does. It that's really been does. a real education. Yeah. And we're rarely on a show at the same time together. But I think mostly because neither one of us will shut up. Which you is, can find me so at Angry Black Lady on Twitter. It's one of the things that's great. Yeah. It's one of the things that's, that I love the most about working with Amani is in that sense, it's just not. Work. And you can um, join our you know, podcast, our Facebook group for our podcast. And, um, we have a Facebook group. It's called Boom Lawyer. If you just, um, we have, we have, but it means long conversation. Just as why do you like us? <laughs> just to sort of, um, but yeah, please join our Facebook group. And, you know, we try to interact with people there. 10 to 15 minute there. breakdown of what happened that day. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Download our podcast. I'm really looking forward to that. That's fantastic. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And uh, we hope to connect again sometime in the future. Yes, please. That'd be great. Thanks for having us. Bye. Bye. All right. So again, a big thank you to Jess and Imani for joining us today. Um, it was a super interesting discussion. I definitely learned a lot. I hope yeah. you guys do. Um, I hope you, got you should all join their Facebook group. I joined it the other day by telling them I was a huge law nerd. That's my answer to the question. And there's, it's actually like such a great resource too and good sense of community. So pretty sweet deal. Um, and I do love the name of their podcast. I know. So, you love saying the name of their podcast. It's true. It's so dorky. <laughs> it's also so Twitter. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, can you please say that from now on? Boom lawyer. I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's mine to say. <laughs> we, need, we need to get you a catchphrase. A lawyer I do. I would love to have a catchphrase. That is like what my life is missing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. This is where oh. we are now in our lives. <laughs> okay, for the next pod, we need to all three of us come up with our own catchphrases. How about that? Oh no, this doesn't end well. I do it for the lulls. I mean, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I do notice that I say now a lot, listen. Oh yeah, you definitely do. I can confirm this. <laughs> I don't know that. That's not a catchphrase though. No, not, not quite. Although depending on how you say it. <laughs> listen here. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, I hope you, hope you guys learned a lot. Um, enough of us chit chatting, just shooting the shit. Um, well, don't we, forget to follow us on social media. Yeah. Did you have something? No, to say? I was just gonna say we missed doing this. We'll be back to our regular schedule. I feel like people should know that we're we'll be back. True. Yeah, it's true. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming <laughs> next next week, the week after. Just have to check our schedules and make sure that no one's away. You know. Anyway, follow us on social media. You guys know the deal. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook slash Bad and B Podcast, and email us. You know, we have our Dear Bitches column. So send us your questions to badandbpod at gmail.com. Bye. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, how are you going to do this? Like, I we can't know. It doesn't work.
<laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> okay. Let's do, let's do, I'll count into three. I'll go one, two, three, and then a silent four, and then we'll do it. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, ready? Don't laugh. One, two, three. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that wasn't bad. All right, let's just use that. Bye. <laughs> My bitch is bad and bullshit.